Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. We're picking up in Luke 18 tonight, so I know, as I said a minute ago, that we still have some more chapters to go, but we're going to conclude all the way through chapter 24 tonight. I'm going to touch on a key nugget on each one of these chapters, very simple little nugget out of each one of these chapters, and expound on a couple other little things. But we're going to look at some key things that are significant as we continue now to the latter end of the life of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, and even his ascension. In Luke 18, verse 1, we have what's called the parable of the persistent widow. The parable of the persistent widow. Now, a lot of people still kind of get confused about this parable because they think in some way that this is being compared to God, but clearly it's not. So really, what's the point of the parable? Let's find out. Luke 18, verse 1. He, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always, underline this please, ought to pray and not lose heart. There's the heart of the parable. There's the heart. So as you read through this, Listen to what he's saying, that you and I should do what? You and I should continue to pray always, and in praying, in praying, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's the key to the parable. What does it mean to lose heart? Anybody know? Well, give up would certainly include, certainly be losing heart for sure. What would cause us to lose heart? Relationship to prayer, right? For prayer to work, what do we got to do? we got to pray in faith. So to lose heart means what? I get out of faith. I get out of faith. The whole purpose of this parable is, I'll give it to you up front, all right? Here's the purpose of the parable. You can't just pray in faith, you got to stay in faith. That's the whole purpose of the parable. The whole aspect of what he taught here was, you can't just start off praying in faith, you've got to stay in faith. There's things you're going to pray about, as it relates to your life, promises God's given you, things God, God has done to Christ for you, things that God wants to see change in your life that you want to see change. That when you begin to pray, opposition can come. Things can try to alter. Things can try to stop it from happening. What we just talked about tonight in praying, excuse me, in our praise and worship was, He's working even when you don't see it. But He's only working on the behalf of those who stay in faith. Because it takes faith to keep God active in doing what he's doing in your life. So if you notice this, verse 1, it goes on here. He said to them, saying, there was a certain, uh, there was in a certain city a judge, notice this, who did not fear God. Did not fear God, nor regard man. To regard means respect. He had no respect. What kind of judge would this be? Not a good one. Not a good one. Guess what you wouldn't want as a judge in your land? You wouldn't want a judge who has no reverence for God, although we have some in America, and has no respect for for man. And we have some in America who only care about themselves and could care less about other people. Verse 3, notice this. Now there was a widow, a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. In other words, somebody has taken advantage of this widow unjustly. She has a right here. She's not complaining. She has a right to go to a judge. She would not be going to a judge if she didn't have a just cause and a reason, obviously, as to what's going on of what's being taken advantage of her as a widow. Verse 4, he would not for a while. He would not. Why? Didn't respect me. Could care less. Could care less about individuals' lives, people's lives. Had no reverence for God. So he would not do so for a while, verse 4. But afterward, he said within himself. Notice what he said within himself. Who's his focus on? Himself. Himself, right? So he said within himself, though I do not, said it himself, though I do not, listen to this off his own lips, I do not fear God, God, nor regard man. I have no respect or reverence for God, nor for man. Yet, because this widow troubles me, another phrase would be wearies me. In other words, I'm tired of putting up with her. She won't leave me alone. I'm fed up with this old lady, basically is the way he just said it, because he had no respect for her. 
And so he says, uh, even, uh, he, he said, because she worries me, troubles me, I will, I, will avenge, I will avenge her or vindicate her or basically give her what she wants just to do what? Get her off my back. Yeah. Notice, lest by her continual coming, she weary me. I'm tired of her. I don't want to mess with her anymore. I want her out of my life. I'm fed up listening to her. Now notice this. Then the Lord said, listen to his words. The Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. What did the unjust judge say? He said himself that he had no no fear for God, verse 4, nor did he regard man. Okay? So this was somebody who truly is nothing like God. Correct? And he finally just decides to deal with her and get her off his back because really, who's her opposition to getting her justice? The judges. The judges. You know what she's not going to do? She ain't going to back down to her opposition. Come on, somebody. See, the judge is not the representative of God here. The judge is the representative of her opposition here. What's keeping her from getting avenged? The judge is. You know what she ain't going to do? She ain't going to allow that opposition to stop her of going after what she has a right to. This is the parable. See, most people try to somehow fit this judge along with God because the judge is the one avenging her. Well, let me help you. He is the opposition to why she is not getting what rightfully is hers. But she didn't quit. Say she didn't quit. Think how many Christians quit in situations where all of a sudden things don't come to pass when they want it to or opposition comes. Think about an area of your life tonight. Is there an area that you have exercised faith in but maybe you're not now anymore? Well, you initially kind of got in faith, but now you've gotten out of faith, that you're not consistently doing what faith does. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God, listen to that, verse 7, shall, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Meaning what? He knows a lot of times in our life, as we are crying out to God, we may obviously be doing so in a way that's not biblical or right and not staying in faith. God wants to do what? He wants to avenge us speedily. Shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to, to him, though he bears long with them? Look, verse 8, I tell you, he will avenge them what? Speedily. So he's not holding back. But look at this last statement. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find what? Wow. (laughs) When Jesus comes back, will he really find faith on earth when he comes back? Now, I'm going to tell you what. That statement is saying when he shows up, will there be people people on the planet who are still walking by faith, who are still trusting in him, who are believing for his return? But as it relates to anything that God has given you a promise of, here's the whole purpose of the parable. You're going to have stuff that's going to oppose you, like this judge. You're going to have things that are going to try to stop you from getting what God has promised. Here's what you do. In faith, do we keep asking for, for the same thing over and over again? No. What do we do? We, we start in faith. You listening? We pray in faith, and then we do what? We stay in faith. So how do we stay in faith? Real simple. Faith continues to not just believe in his heart, but confess with your mouth. If I believed I received, what's my staying in faith sound like? I have. I have. Well, it's not there yet. Doesn't matter. If I believed I received it, guess what I'm doing? If I'm still in faith. But you know how many Christians have actually backed out of faith? You listening? I, I, I guarantee you, even recently, I've heard of different stories. Well, we're believing for this. Oh, oh, it's going to happen. Oh, now, now it don't look like it's going to happen. See, the minute you start saying that, you just got out of faith. You need to get back in faith. I said, you need to get back in faith. You got to understand, Jesus is saying, when I come back, am I really going to find people who truly do understand and believe what God said is truth? And therefore, they won't let anything back them down? So you got to ask yourself that question. What's backing your faith down? What's backing you down? Your circumstances, your pain in your body, your finances, your situation in your marriage, your situation with your job, your situation with the world. See, if something's backing you down from your faith, you need to rise back up and say, "Uh uh-uh, I am going to do what this very parable teaches me. I am not just going to start in faith. Say it, I'm not just going to start in faith. I'm going to stay in faith. Guys, it ain't God holding stuff back. He wants to avenge speedily. 
in this earth, there are things Satan wants to try to do to hinder us from receiving what God has for us. But guess what? If you're like the widow and you stay in faith, guess what happens? God makes a way through. I said, God makes a way through. I said, God makes a way through. Now, listen, I encourage you seriously, go examine your life. Take a look at your life. Are there things that you were believing for that did not yet come to pass that you're no longer truly in faith, actually exercising faith for? You can't stop exercising faith. You listening? You're not staying in faith if you stop. Faith without works is dead. You got to keep exercising faith for it to stay active. I can't just keep believing in my heart. I got to keep speaking. And I got to keep doing what? Acting. Acting upon what I say I believe. Now, if you don't believe it yet, speaking and acting, it won't cause it to come to pass. If you don't believe it yet, what do you got to do? Go build your faith up in the Word of God until you believe it in your heart. But ladies and gentlemen, all this is is simply telling us there is not a single thing God has promised us in the Word. He doesn't want to do speedily. It doesn't mean He always can. How many understand if you're believing the context for finances, you don't ask God for money because He has none to give. But you exercise faith in this earth to receive what you have available. But guess what? God has to now actually deal with people and work with people to see that happen. So that sometimes takes a while. Are you listening? Many Christians are not anywhere near listening to what God's telling them to do. They're too wrapped up in their life that he's wanting them to obviously be used to help other people. So you and I got to realize that we can't just uh, pray in faith. We got to do what? Stay in faith. Say it with me. I am not just going to pray in faith. I'm going to stay in faith. That's the purpose of the parable. Stay in faith. When he comes back, will he really find Christians who are staying in faith, who have not backed down, who have not given up on his return? Because in Jesus' name, whatever he's promised us, I'll guarantee you what, it's still there and it's still available. We got to do what? Stay in faith. All right, Luke 19. So he goes on here. In Luke 18, he gives a parable then basically of a Pharisee and a tax collector. He kind of touches on the issue about the kingdom again here. He goes on and talks about even the aspect of what he dealt with with a rich young ruler and how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom. His disciples said, well, who can enter then? Who, who can get in the kingdom? I mean, if a, if a rich man, I mean, if it's hard, why did they say that? These weren't, most of these weren't poor guys. And, and what Jesus said, well, with man, that's impossible, but not with God. I, I love it. He said, with God, all things are possible. So we come to Luke 19. At the very start, you actually learn about Zacchaeus. We're not going to read his story. But he's a guy who I'll guarantee you people like Kathy would greatly appreciate. He's a short stature, little guy. And, and there's a huge crowd. But he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see him. This guy literally thinks about this and kind of looks at where he's at. And what's around in the, in the topography, and he realizes he's got to go this way. So he runs on ahead and he crawls up into a tree climb, just so he could see him. Just so he could see him. He catches Jesus' attention. I'm going to tell you what, you start climbing up in some trees, you catch Jesus' attention. And, and so, of course, he goes to his house. And he actually eats at his house and he talks about different aspects of dealing with, of course, that aspect of his life and recognizes salvation has come to his house because he had a heart to know God. He talks about the parable of the minas. And all this means is that what God entrusts to us, he expects us to do something with it for the kingdom. He doesn't expect us to take the gifts and abilities he gave us and not use them for the purpose of building his kingdom. He wants us to use our gifts and abilities for the kingdom. I so appreciate everybody in this church who does. Everybody from gifts and abilities to minister to kids' church to Justin putting electrical in to Mike working on wood. That's using your gifts and abilities for the kingdom. That's taking what God gave me and I'm actually getting to use it to bring back people into the kingdom, which is what he wants to actually see happen. Then the triumphal entry happened. So here we are getting close to the end of Jesus' life. In the latter part of Luke 19, where actually he now comes into town. And of course, what we know as the triumphal entry, or oftentimes what is it recognized in, in the modern days of Palm Sunday. But I want you to so, see what happens. So, he, so we go through all that. He rides into town. He comes to the temple. And he goes into the temple to teach, as he always did. And as he goes into the temple to teach, we're going to look at verse 45 through verse 48. <clears throat> Watch this, because this is a problem still today. 
This is a problem today in different ways in the body of Christ as a whole. And it's something we need to correct and make sure we don't fall into here in our church. Luke 19, 45. So he's, he's ridden into town. And we're just days away from his crucifixion and his death and burial. And in verse 45, it says he went into the temple. He began to drive out, drive out those who bought and sold in it. Matter of fact, the other gospel says he made a whip of cords. He kicked the money changer tables over and he drives these people out of the temple. Now realize why he did so. What are these quote unquote money changers doing in the temple? Well, this is the time of the Passover. Passover's coming up. This was a time when all those who were of the nation of Israel had to come to Jerusalem to offer their uh, sacrifices, their yearly sacrifices unto the Lord, recognition of the Passover. Now, people that traveled from a long way, hard for them to bring those animals with them. So what they would actually do is they'd bring money with them, and they would then pay to buy the animals they needed for the sacrifices. Well, of course, you know, business people, being who they are, thought, man, hey, we could provide a service here. But, of course, some went beyond thinking of providing a service. They're taking advantage of these people. They're overcharging them. And they're not only just doing that, they're actually doing it in the temple. Basically, what they're doing is they're recognizing now the house of God. Say the house of God. This temple is the same as what we're in today, known as the house of God. So the house of God in their day, now they can care less about worship to God. It's all about a money-making opportunity. It's about taking God's house and losing all aspect of reverence and respect for the house of God. We still get flack for people that want to bring all their sodas and, and donuts and all that stuff in our sanctuary. <clears throat> and listen... We're not worshiping the carpet. We're not worshiping, but the reality is, I mean, people bring their sodas and coffees in. You know what happens. Those get knocked over. They stain things, et cetera, et cetera. We're not here to feed our flesh in the sanctuary. We're here to feed our spirit, man. We have a place to do that. You go back in the back, but we're not here to do that here. I wish we did have an entryway fellowship or we will in the new church. Aren't you glad? Nothing wrong with that. I'm all for that. But when we come into here, we're here to feed our spirit, man, not our bodies. You know, the modernist today says, well, we're just going to let everybody bring their food and sit around and just eat and do whatever. Well, I will promise you very little is being received when you're sitting there feeding your physical man. You're not paying much attention to the spiritual man. And this did not happen in the temple in Jesus' day. It was not allowed in the temple in Jesus' day. Now watch this. So again, he went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Who did this? Jesus did. 46, notice, he said to them, it is written, my house is a house of donuts and coffee. Oh, it's not. Didn't say that in your your Bible? My house is a house of what? It's a house of prayer. When you come into my house, it's a house of prayer. But you've made it what? Now, is is God against them coming together and having felt? No, they did have fellowship, but not inside the temple. They did it outside the temple. Right? With families together, etc. God's not against that. Matter of fact, he encouraged it. But not in the temple. When you come in the temple, what are you there to do? Focus on God. So notice what he said. He said, it is written, God said this about his own house. My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In their case, they're simply now turning it into something that they can make a buck with and take advantage of the people. 47, notice as he was teaching daily in the temple, even the chief uh, priests and the scribes and the, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Why? He's getting attention. He's drawing attention away from them. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say. 48, notice they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to do what? Hear him. So, again, verse 46 is the key there. What's his house supposed to be? Place of prayer. What does that mean, really? What does it mean, a place of prayer? Well, did they just come and pray in the temple? No, we just found out he was there teaching. He was there teaching the Word of God. So, simply put, in context of what prayer really is, what is prayer? Communion with God. You're connecting with God, whether you're talking to Him, whether you're hearing the Word preached, whether you're worshiping Him, praising Him, serving Him. It's all about what? It's all about communion with God. So, what was he saying? God's house is a place to commune, to become one with Him. It's not a place when you come into this temple or into the house today, in the house of God today, to be focused on everything but God. No, you're supposed to be focused on nothing but God. You're supposed, sure, you're to exhort one another, but our heart's supposed to be focused on God because His house is a house of what? Communion with Him. 
That hasn't changed. This is literally Jesus acknowledging, acknowledging this in the New Testament in relationship to even his time of worship in the house of God. Amen. Now we get into chapter 20. He therefore, by these leaders, gets questioned about his authority. Who gave you the authority to do this? I love Jesus' answers. He's so cool, you know. So he knew their heart, and he obviously knew they were trying to trick him. And he also knew that they would never speak against John, you know, John the Baptist. So he asked, so who gave John the Baptist the authority that he had to preach? Well, he knew they wouldn't say it wasn't God because most of the people believed he was a prophet of God. And so they knew, well, we can't say that because if we say, well, it wasn't from God, all the people will get mad at us. And they didn't want that. They wanted all the approval of the people. And so they said, well, we really don't know. And guess what he said? Neither will I tell you from where my authority comes. He was, Jesus was awesome. He's incredible. So we go on to talk about then in verse 9, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, those who were supposed to take care of the things of God while he had gone away and came back. We're not going to touch on that. He then gets down here, notice this, in chapter 20, down here in verse 20, and he talks about the issue. I know you're probably going to get excited about this one, taxes. Taxes. Why are we talking about taxes? I'm going to show you why. Notice this. Luke 20, verse 20. So they watched him. They sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Who was the governor at the time? Pilate. Verse 21. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know, now notice how they're going to butter him up. These are people who are trying to catch him at his words in some way so they can take advantage of him and arrest him. Notice what they said. Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, which he did. Notice, and you do not show personal favoritism, which he did not. But you teach the way of God in truth. Wow. So all of that is correct. Now, why did they say all that? A lot of times when people are trying to flatter you, Got to be careful because they may be trying to set you up to take advantage of your life. 22, is it lawful? They're trying to catch him on, does this man pay tax or not? Because if he doesn't, we got him. We can turn him over to Pilate because anybody doesn't pay tax, guess what? They get arrested. So he says here in verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Hoping he would say no. Because if he says, if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, guess what they can do? Turn him over to Pilate. They can have him arrested. Anybody for not paying taxes would get arrested. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, why do you test me? Why, why are you doing this? 24, show me a denarius. He, again, so smart, man. So he takes part of what they had of coinage of the day. He said, show me this denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Well, whose did it have in the area where they were? Had Caesars. Why? Because they're near Rome. And therefore, of course, they're using all forms of Roman coins to buy and sell things. So the answer they said, well, Caesar's inscription is on it. 25. So he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Man, we can't get him on that one. Notice this. But he added to it. I said he added to it. And to God the things that are what? God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they kept silent. So he clearly said, obviously, whatever Caesar says, you're to render to him, render to him. Did Jesus pay taxes? He did, didn't he? How many, how many know, how would you, I'd like to go fishing. <laughs> really, in your taxes for the year. That's what he did. So obviously, a little different in their day. They didn't lay taxes up, most of them. So he did pay taxes, but notice what he says in verse 25. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What is being dealt with here? Money. Money's being dealt with. They're trying to catch him on money issue of whether he paid tax or not. So he clearly says you should pay tax, but he also said you should do what with your money? You also render to God the things that are God's. Now, if you don't have it written down, you should put a little note if you've got room in your Bible right next to that verse. You should put Leviticus 27.30 next to that verse. Little note there. Just write LEV period 2730 right next to that verse. Why? Leviticus 2730 says the tithe is the Lord's. 
The tithe is the Lord's. So you know what he just told them? Not only should you pay taxes, but you should also honor God with your money and render to him what is rightfully his. Now, Jesus just again in another part of the New Testament endorsed tithing in the New Testament. Because the tithe is the Lord's. All these people who say the tithe is truly not part of the New Testament absolutely would say, well, I guess I'm just not going to do what Jesus taught. I just do whatever I want. Not me. I'm sticking with Jesus. So Then they go on and talks here about the Sadducees who brought up the resurrection. Again, they're trying to trick him, trying to catch him about the resurrection. He addresses that, of course, clearly states God is a God of resurrection because he's the God of... Who's he the God of? Do you remember? He is clearly the God of resurrection because he is the God of what? He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. And the God of what? Jacob. Well, how could he be God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob if those people aren't alive anymore? He is the God of resurrection because all those people are still alive. Amen? So he talks about that. Verse, excuse me, chapter 21. At the end of the chapter of 20, he does again warn his disciples about the scribes. Being aware of the scribes again because all they want is all the attention from the people. And therefore the things they're directing you into is not good. Luke 21. So now we are again in the context of the time where he is in the last of his time on earth. He's been teaching in the temple. They're trying to still trick him, catch him in his words so they can arrest him. And here in chapter 21, he talks about the widow's two mites. Remember that? He's therefore sitting in the temple at that time during the time in which people brought money into the treasury and brought what was the Lord's. And he acknowledges this widow who gave more than everybody. Everybody, because he bases what we give off of the percentage, not the amount. We're not going to touch on that because we've talked about it many times, just kind of walking through this. Now, he begins after that to predict the destruction of the temple, the very temple they're in. He starts talking about that temple, that it would be destroyed. Now, the rest of chapter 21 of the book of Luke is Luke's account of what Jesus talks about three time periods. And those three time periods would be what's going to happen to the disciples immediately coming up, what's going to happen after they're gone as we enter in towards the end of what we know, the time of the church where the rapture will come, and then the end of the age. So he covers all three of those topics uh, in this context of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21. We're going to actually look at a couple of verses of this. We're going to look at, at verse 19. As he begins to talk to his disciples about all these things that would happen, wars and rumors of wars and all this kind of stuff, in verse 19 he makes a powerful statement here. In the midst of all of what he talks about about the last days, you should underline or have this verse highlighted in your Bible. He says, by patience, possess your souls. Listen to that. By patience, possess your souls. Now, Greek scholars kind of have a variation as to the reference to souls here. Because context of souls, we understand we have a spirit, have a soul, live in a body. So we understand that that's directly just relating to the soul alone. It would refer to us possessing or maintaining control over our mind, will, and emotions. But some other scholars say the phrase souls here refers to the whole of your life. That if you want to save the whole of your life, you've got to possess, quote unquote, your souls. In other words, you've got to do something to actually possess or to maintain uh, your walk with God to the end of this life. I'm going to kind of refer to both because there's, again, there's a divided belief on what's really being spoken of here. So, well, I'll just tell you both of them, which kind of really fit the context of what he's saying anyway. Context of patience refers to endurance, say endurance. So when the word is brought up of patience, he's saying to endure. One definition of the word here actually means to stay submitted under. Stay submitted under. What are we supposed to stay submitted under? God. So uh, if you're referring to just the soul itself, mind, will, and emotions, it's clear that if you and I want to actually possess, maintain control of our souls, we're going to have to do so with what? By submission under God. We got to keep our souls submitted under God if we're going to possess our soul. If not, our soul is going to possess us. Not good. Talking about the spirit man. Our spirit man needs to dominate. For our spirit man to dominate and possess our soul, we got to do what? We got to endure, stay submitted, be consistent. 
You got to be consistent at keeping your soul subjected to God. You can't just do it once in a while. You need to do it day in and day out. Every day you need to be subjecting what is your reasoning to the Word of God. You need to be subjecting your will to God's truth and will for your life. And you also need to be subjecting your emotions to what God clearly says you're to do with your emotions, which means you're supposed to speak to them and take control of your soul and not let your emotions rule you. So from that perspective, it would be very clear it's a part of what we would need to know about living in the last days. What happens if you don't possess your soul in the last days? Well, guess what? You're going to, be take advantage, you're going to have advantage taken of you in the last days. Clearly, then Satan's going to take advantage of you through your soul. So let's say it just refers to souls as your life all the way to the end. Well, the same would be true because if you continue to live with endurance or submission to God, you're going to make it all the way to the end. So really, they both apply. Just realize that's a powerful statement that we need to learn from the lips of Jesus. Right in the middle of talking about all this stuff about the end times, it's like all of a sudden, right in the midst of it, as he's sharing with his disciples, he says, and you better make sure you consistently stay submitted and under the rule of God so that you can maintain possession over your soul. You don't need your soul possessing you. You as a spirit man need to possess your soul. If you possess your soul, you, the spirit man, control your emotions. You, the spirit man, control your will. You, the spirit man, control your reasoning. Could I get a better amen? And if you're doing that, you're going to live a successful life in the last days. The last days can't... How, how does Satan take advantage of you? Through the flesh. Well, how does he get at your flesh? Through your soul. Through your... Uh, quote-unquote mind reasoning, your will, choices, and your emotions. And if he can get control of those, he can take advantage of you. So realizing the definition of all these things of the last days, what a powerful nugget of Scripture we don't ever want to forget. If I and you possess by patience our souls, we won't be taken advantage of in the last days. Amen. Amen. Keep your soul subjected to God by keeping possession of your soul as a spirit being. Amen. And if you do that, I will promise you, you're going to walk out a strong life in the last days. He talks about after that, the destruction of Jerusalem. What would happen with the destruction of Jerusalem? If you don't know it, in verse 24, he talks about that Jerusalem would be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's happened. If you don't have it, there's a, you can put a note right next to there, 1967. 1967, that verse was fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles ruling in Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple ended because they got back possession of the Golan Heights through the, remember the, 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 the uh, uh, very short war that happened there in 1967. Jerusalem against, once again became a nation. They got re, regained control of all of Jerusalem. That's been fulfilled. Say so that's been fulfilled. Verse 25, just for some end time stuff here. There'll be signs in the what? Sun, in the moon, and in the stars, but on earth there will be distress of what? Nations with perplexity, meaning what? Man, you want to know the simple truth of what that says right there? There'll be so much distress amongst all nations of the earth because all common sense will go out the window. Perplexity means they're perplexed. They, they're, there's not even common sense being applied anymore. Notice, with perplexity and even the seas and the waves roaring, all the storms and stuff we see happening. That began really in context to what uh, Dr. Sutton taught clearly. The, sun's, the, the signs beginning in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, 1968. Anybody know why? Anybody know why? Put a man on the moon. So that's when these signs began to be fulfilled. So he talks about this. He goes on to talk about the parable of the fig tree, meaning that as you know... When obviously leaves on a fig tree start to fall, that's, a, that's an indication that there's fruit showing up on that tree. So should you know of the time in which you're living and especially the end of the age. Verse 34 is what we're going to look at. Here's what he talks to us about. So let's focus on our part. Amen? I said let's focus on our part. Amen? Notice what he tells us to do. Verse 34. Take heed to yourselves. Underline that please. Take heed to yourselves. I have a new message coming up after the first of the year about living as a true warrior and a true champion for God. Because a lot of Christians really honestly, sadly, will never make it because they don't take heed to themselves. 
Uh, just the other morning, uh, the Lord began to show me and give me examples and speak to me about this. You know, he began to walk me through different scenarios. He said, why is it we sit and watch people at the National Finals Rodeo? Why is it we watch people in the World Series? Why is it we watch people in, uh, name it, Super Bowl or the Olympics? You know how, how you watch them? I'll tell you why. Because somebody had a passion and a commitment to be able to get there. And because they had a passion and commitment to get there, they made the sacrifices necessary to be able to get there. Most of us sitting back watching say, well, that would be cool, but we would never take the time to make the sacrifices and the commitment that it takes to get to that level to get there. Are you listening? It wasn't because of luck. There's no such thing as luck in the Bible. It was because of a commitment. It was because of the sacrifices they made, the effort they put forth. And God said, guess what? Most of my children, if they would learn to have such a passion for me, would be willing to make the sacrifices that are going to help actually their life, not hurt their life, get rid of stuff that's hurting their life, and they would truly become more powerful in this earth than they've ever been. But the problem is they won't take heed to themselves. They won't take heed to themselves. See, again, an athlete has to take heed to themselves. Meaning what? So while we're sitting on the couch, they're not. While we're still asleep in bed, they're up at 3 in the morning out running and doing what they need to do. You listening? You ever heard what an Olympic trainer goes through? Uh, When we're eating whatever we want, they're not. They're cutting foods out. They're cutting things out they know that's going to hinder their performance and their ability. Thank you for your amends about that. But see, while we're at home at night after working all day and they've been training or working all day, guess what they're still doing? In the context of the rodeo world, they're still at the arena tying a calf, running around the barrels, riding a bull, come on, or riding a bucking machine or something, because get, or, or riding a spur board. You know, you look at people in the rodeo world, I think of a guy named Casey Fields. This guy's like a machine on a bucking horse. I'm going to tell you why. Hours and hours and hours and hours and who knows how many hours on what they call a spur board perfecting that motion. So when he gets on a bareback horse, it's just automatic. It just happens. See, a lot of people see him on that bareback horse like, wow. But not only is he perfecting that spur motion, guess what else he's doing? He's developing the muscles and the strength and the core exercising strengths that are needed to actually compete against that horse when he gets on that horse. I think people like Wes Ward and like Jason and like him, like him, like the bear, they're nuts, man. They're crazy people. I mean, I, I don't mean that in a sense like bad. I'm just saying it's crazy to want to just simply put your hand on a rigging, nothing else to hold on to the horse with, and just let the horse like it looks like beat the snot out of you for eight seconds. You know what I'm saying? But you know what? When a guy does it right, it actually doesn't look so difficult. It doesn't look so you know so punishing, you know, to the rider. But I'm here to tell you, folks. Guess what? This is, a, this is a powerful truth. Those people got there because they were willing to take heed to themselves. You know where we are today in our walk with God? Where we, want, we are where we want to be in our walk with God. I said we are today where we want to be in our walk with God. Everybody could say, I'd like to come up higher in our walk with God. We can. All you got to do is do what? Take heed to yourself. So notice what he said. Take heed to yourself. Our pastor says it this way. You ready? Deal with yourself. Don't deal with other people. Deal with yourself. So you got to take heed to yourself. Watch. Less, less your hearts be weighed down. So if I don't deal with myself, guess what Jesus is warning us of? Our hearts could be weighed down. Our hearts could be taken advantage of with what? Carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you what? Unexpectedly. Carousing means you are literally living a life for self. That's what it means. The word carousing means I'm self-focused. I'm doing what I want. I'm fulfilling what I want. I'm living life the way I want. That's carousing. Drunkenness is being intoxicated with anything. Not just alcohol, even the world. There's a lot of people intoxicated with the world or the things of the world. Intoxicated means you're in love with it. So realize, even in that perspective, there's a lot of people who are intoxicated with the world and the things of the world. And the last thing, cares of life. They're so caught up with what they desire out of what they can get in life. If you do that, your focus is on the things of this life. Guess what you're going to get caught up with? The cares of life. So understand that even if you were, you know, 
uh, in the light of the, of, the, of the eye of the human, wealthy. How many know a lot of wealthy people are caught up with cares every day? It doesn't mean they have any form of peace at all just because they got a lot of money. Matter of fact, for some of them, that makes things even worse because they're afraid to lose what they got. So you got to understand that you got to take heed yourself so this doesn't happen to you. 35, for it will come that day when he comes, it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray what? Always. Stay connected to God. Pray always. Stay close to God. Say it. Stay close to God. Praying always just means I keep my relationship with God strong. It doesn't mean you got to be on your knees praying every day. Nothing wrong with being on your knees praying every day. But you can talk to him all throughout your day without ever even getting on your knees. It means maintain that relationship. Maintain that closeness with God. Notice, watch therefore, pray always that you may, underline this please, be counted worthy to escape. Now I'm going to touch on that. Listen to that. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So we're kind of learning a little bit about that verse 19 about possessing our soul here. Because if I don't deal with myself, I'm not going to stay in control of my soul. My mind, will, and emotions are going to get out of hand. But if I obviously do what? If I take heed to myself, I'll keep that under control. And you do that by staying close with God. Verse, uh, verse 36, uh, praying always is staying close with God. The phrase be counted worthy is actually not a real correct translation here. It actually, in the, if you have a center column reference Bible, it'll direct you to a center column reference and it says to have the strength to escape. Yeah. To have the strength to escape. If you and I take heed to ourselves, do what's necessary, guess what you'll have? You'll have the supernatural strength. To escape all that's coming down in these last days. I am trying to make myself in, get in a position to do a teaching on uh, dealing with fear again. A little uh, teaching that I want to share with, uh, about fear again. Think about how many Christians. I don't say this to bullet anybody. It breaks my heart to know people that are even actually having to go through this. That COVID comes and people just get totally scared to death as believers. Of a virus that the Bible told you these things would come. Now listen why you should not be afraid of any such virus. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Why are Christians afraid? Are you ready? They didn't take heed to themselves. They didn't take going to church serious. They didn't take getting under a right pastor serious. They didn't take... Why? Faith comes by hearing the... How are you going to build faith to overcome fear? You're not by, sitting with, by not sitting under the word preached. And it breaks my heart because no believer should live in fear. And if you think COVID was it, no, ladies and gentlemen, it's just the start of what's coming down the pike. Can I get a better amen? There's so many things going on in your world right now that are absolute amazing events that are horrible, that are tragic. That didn't happen in the whole lifespan of one president that have happened just in the last year. You want to know why? Because the liberal media is not going to tell you about it. They are not going to inform you about all the evil things that are happening with this government and all the evil things that are happening because of it. I mean, if you don't know it, I guarantee it ain't us Americans, but America is the laughing stock of the world. One of the biggest, largest uh, groups in Russia that have huge influence in Russia, even in their government, just did an actual show. And on that show, they said, how, how crazy is it that America would leave a war hero in our country and they would actually instead give up one of our most noted people who we are so glad to have back, who, by the way, is a murderous killer, that they would give him up for a woman who's a lesbian and leave their war hero locked away. And you know what they said? It shows you where the condition of America is today. And boy, does it ever. You want to know why our country did that? I'm going to tell you why. Because they're out to appease the populace that's listening to the media. And the media is not. I'll guarantee you, most Americans don't even know we got a man in, in prison over there who has uh, been accused of actually being a spy who is not who's been there for several years now as opposed to a basketball player who got in trouble with some dope in her bag. 
I'm not against anybody being brought home. I am just telling you there's something wrong when we leave an incredible man who served our country and given his sacrifice of his life for our country and we leave him locked up and we bring a gal who hates our country, who has damned our country, who will not stand for the, for the, for the national anthem. But yet we send a, a murderous dictator back to them for her. I'm going to tell you what, that tells you where we are. Can I tell you where we are? Welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah, ladies and gentlemen, that we're going to do such a thing to, as that in our country. All because of what they're trying to do to obviously be popular with a certain group of people. So listen carefully. We got to watch. Say we got to watch. And stay close to God. You know why? Again, listen. Not to be counted worthy. You're already worthy. See, that's why that phrase doesn't even make sense. So you look at this in the Greek language so you can have the strength. See, you stay close to God. Guess what you're going to have? All the strength you need. Come on, somebody. You stay close to God. You're going to have all the strength you need. And I'm not demeaning anybody or any person on the planet. I'm demeaning our government and where we've come in the last four years as a government and as a people. It's sad. It is absolutely sad to see. But you and I as a believer shouldn't be shocked because we just read this is what's going to happen in the last days. Nations, perplexed man, they don't even use common sense. It's all about what we can do to stay in control, rule the people, and take care of ourselves. If you really think almost anybody, do you understand me? Republicans just voted for a $7.1 trillion bill that has so many pages in it, they won't even read it. Now wait until you see what somewhere down the road, that stuff's going to start unfolding on us as to what's been voted in, but it got, it passed. And most of our Republicans that voted for it, they don't even know what's in the bill. But guess who crafted the bill? The Democrats did. Who, who knows what all is held in that bill in the 4,000 plus pages that nobody's even read. So I'll tell you what, folks. Thank God we have a God who will give us the strength. I, we're not looking at this like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to watch our, we're going to take heed to ourselves. And we're going to stay close to our God. And we're going to walk in victory as a child of God and take everybody we can with us. We're not going to be fearful of these things. I don't say this to make you afraid. I'm saying that you shouldn't be afraid of any of that. You weren't given a spirit of fear. Hallelujah. I hate to see any believer cower to fear. It's just sad, 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 and it should not happen. So Luke 22, so remember, here he is. He has now come out of the temple when he's taught this to his disciples. They actually walked across the Kidron Valley and up the side of the Mount of Beatitudes, and he sat down and he was teaching all this to them. And this is what he was telling them. And now comes the plot to actually take Jesus and to kill him, to crucify him, beginning in chapter 22. Jesus and his disciples are preparing in verse 7 for the Passover, where he actually institutes what is known as the Lord's Supper, or what we know as communion. And he actually has that Passover meal with his disciples, knowing he's about to go and fulfill the will of God and be crucified. The disciples, after this, believe it or not, begin to talk about in verse 24, who's going to be the greatest among them. And he talks about the importance of understanding the greatest will be the servant of all. We move on then to the garden. So now he comes back down into the garden of Gethsemane, coming back down from the Mount of Beatitudes. You pass the garden of Gethsemane before you get down in the Kidron Valley, go up to the temple. And so he goes over into the garden to pray. And in verse 39, it very clearly says that he coming out, notice this, he coming out went into the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed with his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, watch this, pray that you may not enter temptation. Say that with me. Pray that you may not enter temptation. Now here's what you got to get out of this. This is why this is recorded for us. Listen carefully what he said. First words off his lips. You learn to pray. So that you don't enter into temptation. What is the temptation referred to here? To give in to the will of Satan. To give in to the will of the devil. You've got to pray. You've got to learn how to pray to seek and hear from God and know God's will so that you don't give in to the will of Satan. Because this whole time in the garden of prayer is Jesus dealing with the will of the Father. That's all he's doing for three hours. So he literally says to them again, pray that you may not enter temptation. In this context, temptation to aspects of sin like adultery and stuff. Well, obviously, if you got pulled off into that, you would be out of the will of God. But that's not the heart of this. 
The heart of this is you got to stay in prayer, seeking the Father to know His will so that you don't get tempted to get out of His will. Because He's about to give them an example. He's about to spend three hours in prayer talking to God about the will of the Father to confirm in His heart, I'm about to do the Father's will. So he goes on in verse, it goes on in verse 41, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, notice that. Did he not know he was going to the cross? Yeah. But see, he's being tempted by Satan. So what he's doing is he's confirming in his heart through prayer, I'm in the will of God. How do you control the part of your soul called your will? You go to God in prayer. You confirm in your heart what is his will. When you know that you've confirmed in your heart what is his will, then you obviously act upon it and you do it. And guess what you don't fall prey to? The temptation to get out of the will of God. So here he is asking the Father, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, underline it, not my will, but yours be done. So you got to know what the will of God is. And as it relates to certain things in your life, you got to pray and find out from God what that is. And there's going to be times when Satan's going to try to tempt you to get out of it. I can't, I can't tell you how many times Satan's tried to tempt me to stop being a pastor. You better know what the will of God is. If you're being tempted, you better get in prayer. You better get before the Father and confirm with the Father you're in the will of God. And when you get revelation from the Father in prayer, you're in the will of God. Now you'll be able to overcome the temptation of Satan to get out of the will of God. You listening? There are people that could have saved their marriages had they got serious and fasted and prayed and got in prayer and talked to God and say, God, is it your will for me to get out of this marriage or not? See, I'm not talking about anybody individual. I'm just talking about people as a whole in this, in this world since we've been in existence. There are obviously marriages that, that clearly were not going to work that you got to take two people. It takes two people to make a marriage work. God knows that. I'm not faulting anybody who's gone through a divorce. I'm saying, but there are. Lester Sumrall's taught on it many times in The Total Man. He said, I'm going to tell you right now, there are marriages that didn't have to happen had people not listened to their soul. Had they truly gotten along, got along with the Father and prayed and gotten the will of God, they'd have got their marriages restored. Now, that's not true of every marriage. We're not saying every single marriage that obviously went through divorce was wrong. Any amens on that? I'm not saying that. But I'm just telling you, folks, it doesn't re- relate to anything of your life. There are literally opportunities of businesses that didn't happen because keep, people didn't pray and seek to God, seek to hear from God to know if it was His will or not. There's people that have done things that never was the will of God. Right? But if they'd have taken time to pray, hallelujah, just like Jesus, they could have known. Amen? 43, then the angel appeared to him, in this case from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Notice, then his sweat became like what? There's one of the times, the very first time blood was shed for me and you. His his, uh, sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, who he expected to be doing what? He expect them to be praying, but he found them what? Sleeping from sorrow. Guess what they weren't doing? Taking heed to themselves. Verse 46, notice he said to them, why do you sleep? Why are you sleeping? Guess who you don't want to have come to you in your life and say, why are you not praying? Why are you sleeping? See, it's like we come here on Monday nights. We're not here to sleep. We're not here to be quiet. We're here to raise our voice together in one accord and pray. We're here to accomplish God's will. Notice, rise and pray lest you again do what? Enter into temptation. Temptation to do what? Get out of the will of the Father. Not do what God wants you to do. So you got to know, verse 22 here, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 22 here, verses 39 through 46. You got to take time to pray and know the will of the Father. You got to. You got to get alone with God to hear from God. This is what this three days of fasting and prayer is all about. Find out what God's will is for you in 2023. If you're not sure, keep praying. You may not find out all of God's will in 2023 in three days in fasting and prayer. But you know what you do? You keep praying. You keep seeking to know God's will. We got to start finding out for absolute sure what is His will before we start making all these decisions in our life. After that, he He is clearly betrayed in the garden, right? Judas shows up. After that time of prayer, here comes Judas Iscariot. He betrays him to the soldiers. Who do they take him to at first? Anybody remember? They take him to the religious leaders of the day. 
the actual uh, high priest that was there of that day and the religious leaders of the day. That's who they take him to to initially uh, take him before the religious leaders of their day. Peter, of course, denies him during all of that in chapter 22, just as Jesus said he would. And after that, he is then beaten, uh, the latter part of verse 22, and mocked. After they have beaten him, they've actually uh, mocked him, having been taken to Pilate. Pilate then hands him over uh, to Herod over in uh, chapter 23. They give him, the religious leaders, chapter 23, give him to Pilate. And Pilate then even actually turns him over to Herod. Pilate didn't want to crucify him. Pilate knew, man, his wife was warning him, you leave this guy alone. I've had some bad dreams about this guy. Don't you be, not like bad, like he's bad, but boy, you don't want to be messing with this guy. And so Pilate tries to get his hands clean of the deal, finds out he was from Galilee, which actually was Herod's jurisdiction. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. So he sends him over to have Herod check him out. And Herod actually had been wanting to talk to him because Herod wanted to see a miracle. Uh, but that don't mean Herod wanted to get right with God. He just heard, heard about him wanting to see a miracle. So they clearly bring him back to Pilate. And the amazing thing is, I wished I had time. But if you read this later down here in verses uh, like 20, start actually backing up verse 16 down through 25. What happens here? So they bring him back to Pilate. Herod does. Pilate brings him back out and says, I still find no reason to crucify him. What do they keep shouting out? Crucify him. Crucified. But guess what Pilate did to appease the Jews during the time of the Passover? Every year he would release somebody to him that was imprisoned. So he says, okay, I guess, I guess I'm going to release him. No, 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 we want Barabbas. Now this is interesting. Why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know who the person was that was given on behalf of releasing Jesus? Because God does everything with a reason. What was Barabbas? Barabbas was a rebellious a uh, re- very rebellious gentleman who also was a murderer. Who did Jesus get his life exchanged with? You ready? A man who was taking people's lives was exchanged for the man who was going to give life back. Amen. Pretty awesome. Yes. I said pretty awesome. Yes. A man who had been taking lives is the one who actually is getting exchanged for the man, Jesus, who's going to give us our life back. And so obviously Barabbas gets released. Beginning in verse 26, they take Jesus to crucify him, put him on the cross. I want you to drop down in the chapter with me, if you would, to actually verse 26 here. Uh, We're in Luke 23, Luke 23, verse 26. They're leading him up to Golgotha to be crucified. As they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, uh, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might, underline it, bear it after Jesus. Underline that. They gave this cross to Simeon. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus didn't carry his cross. He carried it part way. Remember, most people died just from the scourging alone. An angel had to help him through that to help him to survive. And he's very weak physically to the point that he's not able to walk that cross all the way out to Golgotha. And so this was common. Many times when they crucified different people, obviously, that deserved it, they weren't physically still capable if they'd been scourged or beaten to carry the cross all the way out to Golgotha or where they would obviously uh, hang them on the cross. So in this case, the same was true of Jesus. But again, nothing there being done without significance for us. What does the Bible tell us? Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know? I'm going to tell you why. The Bible tells us if you're a disciple of Jesus, what are you going to do? You're going to bear your cross and follow him. So here's the point of chapter 23 that we're going to get. What is this referred to me and you? How many want to bear your cross for Jesus? Well, to bear your cross means you're going to fulfill the will of God because he came to go to that cross to do what? Fulfill God's will. We just read it in the prayer in the garden. So when we're bearing our cross, we're fulfilling the will of God for our life, correct? How do we do that? Here's really, really simple. How do we do that? We follow Jesus. Follow his example right there in verse 26. How do you bear your cross? I'll tell you how. You follow after Jesus. You follow Jesus' footsteps, his example, and you're bearing your cross. And you're fulfilling the will of God for your life because the whole reason he came was not just to give you new life, but to set an example how to live. So when you and I follow in his footsteps, what are we doing? I wonder how do I take up my cross, Pastor? Simple. Follow Jesus' example in the Bible. You're bearing your cross. You're fulfilling the will of God for your life. And that's a good thing. 
So, of course, he's crucified. He dies on the cross, latter part of chapter 23. I wish I had time. I love the story here in verses 39 through verse 43 about the two thieves on the cross next to him. Powerful story. Wished I had time to deal with it. But reality is, of course, one is cursing him, saying, man, you know, he's, he's deserved. The other guy's, no, he's not deserving of death. He didn't do anything wrong. He obviously had heard about him, had to have. Definitely had heard about Jesus, clearly. From the perspective of facing Jesus, in relationship to Jesus, him, right hand, left hand, which, which side would this uh, thief that now is talking to him about being remembered by him, which side would he have been on? The right hand. Because all the goats are on the left. All the sheep are going to go to the right. So this man's over on his right hand, and he, and he literally acknowledges the fact that he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. How He said, would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? You don't say that unless you knew this is the Messiah. He's the one to establish his dominion, and I know he's about to enter in. I know he's about to fulfill Scripture. A thief on the cross, he's about to fulfill Scripture. And what's so wonderful about God is, guess what? No matter what you've done up until that time of your life, if you turn to Jesus, say, would you remember me? Would you forgive me? What did Jesus say to him? Remember? This day, you, this day, 24-hour period, you will be with me where? Where was he going? He wasn't going up. He was going down. Where was paradise? It was in the center of the earth. Back, which if you look up paradise, I've taught you this. I love this study. It's a great study. If you look up the word paradise in the Greek right there, uh, actually follow it out to the original Greek, Guess what the word is? Eden. Guess what God did with the Garden of Eden? Put it in the center of the earth. Why? All those Old Testament saints who died, they couldn't go to heaven yet. Jesus hadn't died and been raised from the dead. What did Jesus do? The Bible says when he went into the earth, he went in actually to hell itself and he looked across the gulf and he saw paradise where all the Old Testament saints were. You know what he did? Preach to them. The Bible says he went and preached uh, to those who were in captive. Hey, guess what, boys? You're about to get out of here. <laughs> We're all about to leave down here and go to heaven. You're going with me. And the Bible tells us after Jesus was raised from the dead, the graves of the saints of the Old, of the Old Testament were seen open and they were seen walking the streets ascending to heaven. Where did they come up from? Paradise. And guess who came with them? The man on the thief. The man on his right hand. Isn't that awesome? Say, so thank God for his mercy. Hallelujah. And then you go to Luke 24. Of course, we have the resurrection of our Savior. Him coming back from the grave, just as he promised. We're really short on time here. I want to simply cut to the chase. I want you to get over here to verse 27 with me, please. So he has been risen from the dead. He has appeared to Mary and several of the women at the tomb. Peter ran after they came and told him, we've seen him. He runs with John, doesn't see him, sees the claws still there, comes back, so we didn't see him. But in the midst of this, what happens? In the midst of this, there was two of his disciples that were headed to Emmaus. It was actually a town where people went to kind of get away from everything. All right, after three days, they don't know Jesus had been raised from the dead. They hadn't heard the, they hadn't heard the, the message yet, hadn't heard the, the news yet. They're actually pretty down and out, obviously. Uh, their Messiah, their Savior has been killed. He died. I thought he was going to establish his kingdom. Well, as they're on the way to the road, what is known as the road to Emmaus, guess who appears to him? Jesus does. And at first, they're not really sure if it's him or not. Their eyes are kind of blinded to that fact. But notice this, verse 27, beginning at Moses, as Jesus is walking with them on the way to, on the way to Emmaus, beginning at Moses, Old Testament, and, the, and notice all the prophets underline it, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's teaching about himself as they're walking to Emmaus. He's revealing from Moses and through all the prophets what was spoken about him, what was prophesied about him, what would happen. He would die. He would later be raised from the dead. He shared, I mean, they're getting their own personal sermon from a resurrected Jesus as he's walking with them on the way to Emmaus. 28, then they drew near to the village where they were going to go, where they were going, he indicated at that time that he would have gone on farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, notice what he did, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Now guess what the last time they'd experienced this? Passover meal. Last supper. So all of a sudden they see him break this bread and give it to them. And what happens, 31? Their eyes were opened. 
Their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. 32, listen carefully. And they said to one another, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us? What's our heart burning? Passion for Jesus. A passion and a love like you can't describe for your Jesus. Did not our heart burn within us? Watch while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. Listen, this is our closing point for the life of Jesus and what he wants us to never forget. Why did he come? Why did he come? To reunite us in relationship with him and relationship with the Father. What does this very uh, verse teach us about our relationship with the Lord? You ready? This is powerful. True fellowship with Jesus. True fellowship with Jesus will cause your passion for him to burn hotter and hotter. True fellowship with Jesus will cause your passion for him to burn hotter and hotter. What's true fellowship? You can do it with the scriptures. You can do it in church right now with the word being preached. If you're truly hearing from God as the word's being preached, guess what? Your passion for Jesus is burning hotter and hotter. If not, your mind's somewhere else. Your true fellowship, again, in this context, what happened with them is him sharing the scriptures with them. And when you take time to get in the word of God and fellowship with Jesus, seriously, fellowship doesn't mean I just read a chapter. Fellowship means I'm listening to what he's telling me. I'm letting him reveal things to me out of the scriptures. He's opening my eyes to the scriptures as I'm reading them. As I'm quieting my mind and listening with my heart. So if you're just trying to get a bunch of facts in your head, you're not going to fellowship with him. He's a spirit. He's not going to fellowship with your brain. He's going to fellowship with your spirit, man. And when you learn to quiet your mind and just listen to your heart as you read the scriptures and do that in church, guess what? You're going to fellowship with Jesus. He's the word. And when you truly do that, here's how you know you're in true fellowship with God. Because your passion for him is getting hotter and hotter. Amen. Amen. Your heart's burning stronger and stronger for your passion for Jesus and your relationship with him. Can I get an amen? We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.